This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. A recent report says that only 25% of the school districts across the United States are providing instruction tied to the school curriculum three weeks after schools were closed across the country. Within one big city school system, uh, the, the, the announcement said, well, it's just, about holiday time, almost. They said specifically, we want to make sure as we put in plans in place, we can prepare our kids to do some home learning. Doesn't sound very promising, but when the Miami-Dade County school system announced they were closing the schools on March 16th, its announcement said that the district had been preparing for the possibility of school closures since the beginning of the school year. An instructional continuity plan had been developed and shared with teachers across the district. The announcement said that students will continue to progress in their learning under the consultation and guidance of their teachers. And furthermore, the district is providing teachers with additional professional development online to support distance learning. And that was announced on the very first day that the closure uh, was announced. Now, Miami-Dade County's immediate forceful response to closure is not really an accident. Its school superintendent, uh, Alberto Carvalho, has been providing strong leadership for 10 or more years uh, in the best performing big city school system in Florida, a state which itself is leading the nation in gains in student learning. So I'm very pleased to have with me Superintendent Carvalho on the Education Exchange. Mr. Superintendent, welcome to the Education Exchange podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to uh, chat with you. So recent reports are saying that many school districts are having problems. Uh, your announcement says something very differently. Uh, so um, what's the Miami-Dade approach to uh, this challenge? Well, I think we distinguished ourselves from the rest of the country and the world because we decided early on that we're going to pay close attention to what the tea leaves were telling us. Uh, number one, uh, we're not foreign to technology, nor are our teachers, our students. We began to make uh, strong investments in technology, incorporating it into the traditional brick and mortar instructional setting in our schools for years as part of our digital convergence. And we did that when we passed a bond referendum back in 2012. And the first $250 million of that $1.2 billion investment uh, were spent uh, in our digital convergence, allowing us to create powerful Wi-Fi environments, accumulating over time, a teacher developed, private sector developed, um, as well as supplemental digital content, um, bringing hundreds of thousands of devices and putting them in the hands of students and actually identifying the most critically fragile populations of students and providing them the devices to take home alongside a, a hot spot for connectivity. So when in late 2019, we began to uh, read reports out of China about a fast growing epidemic, which then was quickly declared the pandemic, uh, we decided that it was time for us to, number one, uh, resurface our pandemic plan, which we had in place already, adapt it to what we knew specific to COVID-19, and then we began building our instructional continuity plan, the first version, the 1.0 version, which has recently been replaced last week with a 2.0 version, and uh, did so by considering the worst possible case scenario. Now, this was done 
in late December, early January. I remember bringing my cabinet and putting coronavirus on the agenda. And uh, we began uh, mapping out a worst case scenario and our response as a school system. Now, let me tell you what the worst case scenario was. Worst case scenario would be 100% of our 520 schools would be shut down and half a million students, pre-K to adult and technical learners uh, would be home. And the question uh, that we had to address was how do we provide a continuity of learning under that setting? And uh, lo and behold- It came true. It came, case came true. This is one of those proverbial uh, ones where you, you plan for the worst, hope for the best, but in this, in this case, uh, actually, uh, it, it materialized. And that's why on day one, uh, we were ready. Uh, on day one, we were able to fully transition from a traditional type of instruction, which as you know, in Miami, nothing is traditional because of our strong choice offering, but uh, transition from instruction delivered face-to-face -face in a school setting uh, to a balanced approach of direct instruction by teachers via virtual means side by side in equal parts with teach uh, student accessed but teacher monitored uh, digital learning on a part of students. Well, do you keep the same lesson plans that were originally in place or did you have to modify them? Was that part of the planning process is to come up with modifications? Uh, the, the plan included three main components. One is exactly what you're addressing. Let's map out and uh, align uh, to the standards and to the grade level every single digital asset that we have for the continuity of the teaching. Secondly, the lesson planning is in essence the same because the lesson planning is tied to the state standards. Uh, the, the mode, the platform through which you now deliver it is what changed. But look, that's one element. The second element is the fact that we are a data-rich school system. Every single student, uh, has had, obviously, a student ID with a password. They enter their portal, much like teachers do. And upon signing in through a single sign-on uh, approach, which protects the assets and protects the teachers and students, uh, then the system recognizes who they are, where they are in terms of their learning, and builds, based on a number of digital applications, the road ahead, which is tied to the lesson plan, and tied to the standards. And then the third component of this uh, approach, which is critical, and this is the issue of equity that a lot of districts are just now contemplating and facing across the country, is that well before this crisis, we surveyed back in January, uh, parents' uh, technological needs at home. Do you have a device? Do you have connectivity? So we knew that we knew exactly who needed a device, who needed connectivity, and we announced that we had 200,000 devices to put in the hands of teachers and parents and thousands of hotspots to address the digital divide that the, the country is now, uh, quite frankly, facing. Without connectivity, distance learning will not happen. That is not the case in Miami. So you are confident that virtually all the students in the school system can access this information online? they can access the information online. The challenge we're facing is not one of scarcity of resource, meaning the hotspot, the device, the teacher being able to connect. We're dealing in our third week of distance learning in the very first week, and was a trial week. This third week 
has now embedded in it as part of our instructional continuity 2.0, strong accountability measures such as daily taking of attendance, which is done centralized, and then overnight attendance reports are pushed out to every single one of our close to 19,000 teachers. There is also academic accountability. Grades are assigned to students in every single grade and discipline. Where our concern today lies is uh, with certain pockets of, pockets of parents uh, that we are enabling uh, new strategies that for whatever reason, and I think it has to do with they didn't pay their phone bill, we have no way of reaching them, they moved uh, from the last address, and, and those are some of the most fragile kids, and that continues to be a problem for us. Now, we are retooling and rescaling certain elements of our workforce to actually determine where they are, using our own police force to knock on a door with a bag, with a piece of paper, simple instructions, and a device and a hotspot for that family that up until now had not connected. We are right now only about two to three well, that's a different use of the police than, than we usually hear about in the media. You know, they're turning into public servants here. Yeah, we have sensitized our community to the role of the SRO, the school resource officer. And under these emergency circumstances, everybody's doing something somewhat differently. They are, look, we're paying 100% of our workforce. Uh, and there are a number of colleagues within this workforce whose traditional job cannot be done from home. So we have reassigned them to functions that can be performed from home. Uh, and the police officers with protective measures are out there knocking on doors and connecting parents uh, who have been uh, disconnected. One interesting point, uh, compared to last year around this time, our current attendance on the basis of students uh, systematically constantly being logged into their assets is only a two to three percent below what traditional school attendance was. So I think we're doing very well. We are surpassing the 90% uh, constant attendance daily through digital assets. So uh, that is terrific. We continue to spare no effort in establishing contact and providing additional support to parents and students who have traditionally been disconnected even in a traditional school setting. Well, how about the reaction of the teachers and the other members of the uh, uh, staff who are being asked to do completely different things than they have been doing and, or, or substantially different things than they have been doing? Uh, is the teachers union raising questions? Are the other union? So what kind of um, um, sort of um, difficulties you uh, face when you have to put into a, a radically different approach here? Yes, that's a critically important question. And again, plan, 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 execute, swift. Address the points where you were not successful, do it again. One of the very first things we did as we were developing our instructional continuity plan in advance of the explosive nature of this emergency was to actually begin something that most districts, again, are right now contemplating doing, which is engage organized labor. So before we fully implemented um, the Instructional Continuity 2.0, uh, we negotiated a letter of understanding with the teachers union. With no criticism, with everybody rallying around what needed to be done, providing for accountability, providing for attendance, providing for duties and responsibilities, providing for a, a reshifting of uh, the traditional responsibility of a teacher or support staff, 
to critical elements that would enable the success of distance learning. So we did that. We did the same thing uh, for cafeteria workers uh, who uh, continue to report to 50 different feeding sites across the school system and have, over the past three weeks, delivered 440,000 meals to students between 4 and 7 p.m., allowing parents who continue to work, particularly essential employees, to work, then come to school and pick up the meals for the following day. So we thought, I believe, about every single element of this, negotiated with organized labor what we had to negotiate. We worked out through some of the kinks. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm grateful for the response of the union and how swiftly we transitioned uh, to this new uh, reality. Uh, how about the special education program? I would think that that's the, almost the most difficult aspect of the change. Um, you're absolutely right. So we spent quite a bit of time, number one, analyzing some of the best practices across the globe. We uh, took advantage of some early reports from McKinsey, uh, incorporated it into our um, instructional continuity plan, our distance learning approach. We paid close attention, developed strategies uh, and materials that are adapted and adaptive uh, to students with disabilities in line with their IEPs. We did the same thing for English language learners. Obviously, these two groups, English language learners and uh, students with disabilities, required supplemental materials, whether they were actual packets that were delivered to them or um, digital content that was available in multitude of languages or uh, provided for adaptations specific to their disabilities. Uh, it's a work in progress. I think we are, again, much farther along than most districts, but it's one area where we continue to perfect uh, as we build this plan. Well, now, is the online instruction provided by a material that is uh, professionally developed, or does the teacher, each teacher do their own online instruction to their particular class? Very good question. So for us, based on the research, um, we determined and decided early on that we were not going to mandate any one single kid or teacher to be in front of a computer for seven hours and 20 minutes. That would be a required element that would lead to um, non-compliance and quite frankly, the implosion of our plan. We decided to approach this with a balanced uh, decision that relies on equal parts of teacher-directed instruction utilizing Microsoft Teams and Zoom Enterprise embedded in Microsoft Teams, not allowing uh, the crash bombing of, uh, of the platform. <laughs> Uh, which was a phenomenon that a lot of districts have dealt with. And we dealt with, you know, in, in the district this massive a couple of times. It happened, but not because anybody breached through our firewalls, our servers. It happened because somebody passed on their password and their credentials for login to somebody who then decided to play a game. But from the very beginning, it was a, a balance and it's been a balance. About three to four hours of teacher direct engagement with the students utilizing Microsoft Teams and Zoom, side by side with about three to four hours of a student access, teacher monitored digital instruction, utilizing uh, private sector applications that we have acquired over the years. And most of those are uh, core content enabling, 
but then there are sub, uh, supplemental applications like discovery and gizmos side by side with uh, eye ready and ingenuity. Uh, so it is a balanced approach. This is not uh, a replication of traditional teaching in a school now done uh, via the computer. It's a balanced hybrid model that we believe works best uh, for teachers and students alike. So uh, are, they, are you introducing new material uh, with this on the online media or, or, or are you reviewing the material that they have already been exposed to earlier in the year? So one of our advantages uh, is the fact that most of the assets that they're utilizing online were already being used at school. So when we're talking about our di digital convergence plan, the hundreds of thousands of devices that we are able to put in the, in, you know, available to put in the hands of students. And by the way, uh, over the past three weeks, we have distributed 87,000 devices and thousands of uh, hotspots for connectivity. The applications, the vast majority of them, were already known and utilized in the classroom by teachers. I'm a strong believer, and we've spent a lot of money and time and effort in sensitizing teachers to differentiated instruction. Um, meaning, part of the time in a traditional classroom would be spent in uh, direct instruction. Part of the time would be students working in teams. Part of the time would be students working independently uh, with a digital resource. All we've done is transfer that model now uh, to the distance learning platform and continue it. That is why, as we were uh, enabling the first and second phases of our distance learning platform, uh, we created two days of professional development for teachers to reacquaint them with what they already knew. That's why, uh, Professor Peterson, I believe that this transition was so seamless. It's because we were not necessarily introducing for the very first time technology to teachers or students or introducing for the very first time digital assets that they had never seen. Now we have added new ones, but the basis, the foundation for our platforms was already well known uh, to the teachers. And look, why not? We are living a 21st century reality before the emergency. Anyone who did not anticipate uh, this fast moving uh, opportunity that digital content and hybrid blended models bring must have had their eyes shut uh, as new tools, new innovation was coming to school systems. So we've been using it for a long time. This was just a, you know, a matter of turning off one switch and turning on another switch, which I believe we, we've done rather swiftly in Miami-Dade. Well, Miami-Dade has many charter schools. Yep. And uh, how are they doing? Are they able to uh, deal with the challenge? Um, I think most charter schools in Miami-Dade are being able to deal with the challenge. Number one, they follow our pacing guides. We share the pacing guides as a school system. They share, we share particularly through Title II in professional development opportunities with all charter operators. What we're seeing uh, is interesting. The larger conglomerates of managed charter schools are doing better than uh, singleton uh, charter operators. Um, so some were able to, much like us, turn off one switch, turn on one switch and they were in business. We recognize and are assisting some smaller charter schools that never necessarily made uh, the investments in technology. Therefore, they were not as prepared 
as some of the larger networks like Academica, for example. So how about the financial situation? Uh, this is something that schools have to worry about. The revenue flow into state and local governments is not going to be what it's been in the past, at least uh, not without some adjustments or uh, at least uh, we're going to have to have a huge uh, economic uh, recovery in order to sustain the resources that schools have been depending on. What is your thinking about that and your planning for the future? So I'm glad you asked that question. And I'll begin with a lot of part of your question, the plan for the future. Uh, so we are already planning for a future that is unknown to many, but it's predictable by some. I'm one who believes that when this emergency lifts, we're going to go back to a reality, not just, uh, just not the old reality. I believe that post-COVID-19 emergency that saw an unprecedented shutting down of basically vast majority of America's schools, once that lifts, something will have happened during this period. Let me tell you what it is. And I think it is disturbing, it is disruptive, it is inconvenient, but something is happening. For the very first time in the history of America, 100% of parents are now assuming a front row seat to the education of their children. The curtain is opened. They are looking at the same computer screen that their child is looking at. They're seeing the teacher. They're recognizing the level of interaction between teacher and pupil, the level of responsiveness. I doubt that once this emergency lifts, parents are going to let go of that level of action and interaction with the schooling process. And I think that's going to translate into the next revolution or evolution of choice in America, actually. It's because this emergency has propelled technology as a front runner, as a deliverer of education, of instruction, supervised, monitored, interacted with and by teachers. So I think there will be a surge in blended learning models across the country. I think that is going to change the funding dynamic across states and, and the federal government. So what that will exactly look like is hard to predict at this point. But I'll tell you one thing, for us all to survive in this new, uh, this new reality we're all uh, you know, navigating through, there will need to be another stimulus package and probably even a third one that allocates at least as much as the very first one allocated in terms of direct appropriations for, uh, for uh, public education across the country. Greater flexibility in terms of Title I, II, III, IV uh, for the benefit of students. Greater flexibility in terms of FCC regulations, particularly when it comes to E-rate, so that purchases of equipment, uh, personal uh, you know, technological equipment are achievable under E-rate. And also, maybe, finally, a decoupling of mandated seat time with funding. Because we are learning that nobody, there is, there, kids are assuming a seat, but it's in their living rooms, it's on the floor, it's at the sofa, it's at the kitchen table, not necessarily the school. So I don't see how we move forward ignoring all of the learnings that America is experiencing during this time. And uh, I really do predict a new wave, a new revolution uh, of choice that's being enabled by distance learning and blended learning environments. And, and this may be for the better. I, I hope that's a silver lining, is that uh, 
the crisis be becomes an indispensable opportunity moving forward. Well, this is truly a fascinating conversation, Superintendent. Uh, you certainly are looking to the future. Now, one last question. Some people say the schools will not be able to open in the fall. What's your plan for the fall? Uh, I'm the eternal optimist. Uh, so I, I think that the window uh, for schools reopening this school year is rapidly closing. Even though in the state of Florida, uh, schools are uh, shut down at least to May 1st, it is highly unlikely, uh, considering that the regular school year would end in June, that we will return back to a traditional schooling approach. Um, I do think uh, that looking at the latest data, it is possible that schools will reopen for the 2021 school year. Obviously, uh, the rapidly evolving situation we're dealing with could change that. But I believe that the latest projections uh, from the CDC, uh, from the federal government, do point to some degree of stabilization that will happen over the summer. How quickly that curve of stabilization um, occurs will determine what August of 2020 will be for America. But look, part of our preparation, the 3.0 model, envisions a worst case scenario, which is the crisis continues. I certainly hope that that will not happen. But if it does, uh, we are prepared for it, much like we're prepared to address the summer regression, which this year started early for fragile populations of students. The academic regression will be historic in nature. That is why we're going to implement flexible school year, flexible school days into the foreseeable future uh, to advance the learning opportunities of those who historically have been left behind across America. Well, thank you, uh, Superintendent Carvalho, uh, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's been a pleasure. Always great to connect with you. And best wishes to uh, every single educator and teacher and parent across America. Well, I, I'm sure many of them will want to hear uh, about this extraordinary uh, uh, undertaking that you have accomplished. So thank you very much. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.